Hey guys, I want to welcome you to the Mosaic Podcast. I'm Pastor Erwin Raphael McManus, and I just wanted to thank you for listening. In case you didn't know, I have a new book coming out soon. It's called The Genius of Jesus, The Man Who Changed Everything. And you can pre-order it today at thegeniusofjesus.com. So our theme for the Mosaic Conference is the future of. And we're going to be looking at different aspects of the future as we not only travel into the future, but create it as we go. There's some things that distinguish Mosaic in many ways. There are certain ways of seeing the world and engaging reality and understanding who we are as human beings. So what I wanted to do tonight is I wanted to take the theme, the future of, and focus on the future of humanity. Because if there's one thing we need right now, more than perhaps we've ever needed it before, was a future filled with hope and promise. A future that elevates who we are and inspires us to once again become who God created us to be. I I think for me, this question has been so central throughout my entire life. The question of what it means to be human. What it means to to be the species that we are. And and where are we going? And, And it's interesting to me, whenever we start talking about human evolution and the future of humanity, whenever I'm in different environments, people immediately start asking me about artificial intelligence. But robots, because one day we're going to be replaced by robots. And one of the great concerns, in fact, I was at one of the, the conferences at TED, and the, the, the seminar, that session was called Our Robotic Overlords. That's kind of ominous, isn't it? And, and that entire session was focused on artificial intelligence and, and the realization that we're developing such advanced algorithms that, that computers now seem to be able to outsmart humans. And we're not far away from the day where it will at least appear that artificial intelligence has an equivalent to human consciousness. And so the the question has been, well, when do robots become humans? But I think that's actually the wrong question. The question isn't when do robots become humans, but, but how can we humans regain our humanity? One of the overwhelming concerns from the scientific community was that as they keep developing algorithms that make artificial intelligence more complex and more extraordinary, they can't seem to find an algorithm that will keep robots from killing us. That is a problem. We can't seem to find an algorithm that will keep robots from functioning in what would be described in some unusual way as acting as if they're evil. In other words, turning on us. And one of the dilemmas in this is that Since we're creating the robots, it's impossible to create an algorithm for robots that we have not been able to create for ourselves. We can't even figure out how not to kill each other. We cannot figure out how to live together. We cannot yet figure out how to be most beautifully and wonderfully human. How in the world do we think we can actually put inside of artificial intelligence what we can't seem to find within our own intelligence? So I want to talk to us about the future of us, the future of humanity. It's always fascinating to me when the scriptures unwrap an image that doesn't actually match what we think should happen. And so sometimes, you ever notice that sometimes you'll read the scriptures and you'll reinterpret the scriptures to match what you think it should say? And so you just go right past it. There's two particular 
places in the book of Ezekiel that really strike me, that I, I, I think are really the, 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 the basis of what I want to talk to you about for a few moments. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, God is speaking through Ezekiel, and he says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. And I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Now, I, I love the first part of that, being given an undivided heart, a heart that is not broken, a heart that's not fragmented. How many of us understand that you are the carrier of a broken heart, of a heart that's been broken to pieces? So here the promise is, I'm going to give them a whole heart, and I'm going to put a new spirit in them. But what's confusing to me is the imagery, and I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. That doesn't make any sense to me because I have a heart of flesh. I don't have a heart of stone, so I don't want a heart of flesh because my heart of flesh feels like a heart of stone. And then again, in Ezekiel 36, 26, just in case we thought maybe the imagery was an accident, he says it again. He says, I will give you a new heart. I'm excited about that. Anybody have a sense that humanity needs a new heart? That maybe even you and I need a new heart? He says, I will give them, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you, here it is, your heart of stone. No. And give you a heart of flesh. I want to be really honest. I don't want a heart of flesh. I want a huge upgrade. I want a heart made of quantum liquid, which scientists believe is what the black holes are filled with. I want a quantum liquid heart. Or at least a nuclear fusion heart. I want the heart that Iron Man has. I want Tony Stark's heart. <laughs> I don't want a heart of flesh. I've lived my life in the heart of flesh. See, part of the problem sometimes is that we want God to upgrade us, but we don't realize that the upgrade is actually a reversal of the downgrade. See, when it says that he takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, it doesn't sound that exciting because we all think we have a heart of flesh. Because the heart of flesh is a description of a human heart. I don't want a human heart. I want a superhuman heart. I want a divine heart. I want a, I want a cosmic heart. I want some other kind of heart. I just don't want the kind of heart that I have. Because humanity is something different than what it has. If you look at the human situation, it seems like every morning we wake up and one more person has gotten up and killed people randomly, senselessly. Every day we hear another story of someone walking into some place where people in just the activity of everyday life find themselves a victim of violence. Why in the world would we want that kind of heart again? I think a part of our dilemma is that when we keep looking for a new humanity, we keep hoping we're going to evolve to something that is superhuman or beyond human. But the reality is that God is trying to make us human again. See, what Ezekiel is actually describing is that we have lost our humanity. We've become less than what God intended for us. That his intention for us has been lost and God is working a reversal of the downgrade, which feels like an upgrade. You know the gift God wants to give us? He wants to make us human again. The future of humanity is to become human once more. I remember years ago, there was a young filmmaker in Los Angeles, and he brought me this short film he had made. And he asked me to evaluate it. It's always hard when people do that after they finish the film. 
And the story was of an angel who had fallen from grace and became human. And the story of that angel, now that they were human, trying to work out their new humanity. I said, the problem with your film is that it's completely wrong. It goes completely counter to everything God says about humanity. What are you talking about? I said, being human is not a punishment. It's actually a gift. Angels don't downgrade to become human. We are created in the image and likeness of God. You are the upgrade. And then as I understand that, then things begin to make sense to me. Because have you ever noticed that we're the only species that doesn't know how to be the species? That's called therapy. The only reason you're in therapy is because you're a human that doesn't know how to be human. And in my mind, there are other species that should be in therapy, like platypuses. What are they? Reptiles, mammals, or cobras? Like, every time someone gets close to me, I bite them. I poison every relationship. I mean, cobras should be in therapy. Zebras should be in therapy. Am I white? Am I black? Am I white? Am I black? What am I? But there's no other species on this planet that's in therapy, but humans are. You know why? Because everything God creates has intention. But we're the only species on the planet that can live without our intention. See, everything in the universe has intention. The entire universe in its complexity, ever-expanding, has an intention it fulfills. The solar system has intention. The sun has intention. Every planet in this solar system has intention. And what's amazing is everything in this planet has intention. And as we understand the environment more and more, we realize that there's no species that's incidental, that everything is interconnected and everything matters. That somehow everything in creation has intention. And so everything that God creates does naturally what it's supposed to do. Silkworms just keep creating silk. Isn't that amazing? There are worms that create silk. I find it to be amazing. I, and a silkworm can never get up one day and say, you know, I'm kind of done with silk. It's so last year. I'm going polyester. I mean, there's no way a silkworm can ever leave its intention. Honeybees are always going to make honey. There's no day a bee can get up and say, you know, I don't want to do honey. I want to do peanut butter. I'm going to come at it from a different angle. There's nothing else in creation that can actually change its intention. But humans have this unique capacity to live beneath their intention. Even when people do not believe in God, they have a sense of that intention. Our language betrays us. I remember a few years ago, I did this conference for the National Home Builders Association. And the theme at the National Home Builders Association was rethinking the nature of community. I said, well, that's fascinating to me. Because if community is an act of nature, we don't need to rethink it. We'll just do it naturally. There are no global conventions on rethinking the colony as an ant. There are no bees that get together and say, rethinking the hive. Is it ergonomic? There are no termites coming together saying, enough is enough. 
But humans come together to rethink the nature of community because we don't even know how to do community naturally. And so we live in cities where millions and millions of people are pressed together and everyone is desperately alone. How is it possible that we have planned communities and people live in planned communities and don't know anyone in their communities? And so we use the language, but we don't have the reality because somehow we've disconnected to the nature of that. One time, Kim and I were traveling to the Midwest, somewhere in the middle of the country where there's no ocean. And, and it was a long drive. It was really quiet. And I broke the silence. And I just, I, I shouldn't have broke the silence, but I did. And I said, look at all of this undeveloped land. There's just miles and miles and miles and miles of trees. I said, look at all this undeveloped land. And Kim responded in a way I knew she was unhappy. She goes, this is not undeveloped land. Those are trees. Those are trees. God traded trees, Erwin. I said, I, said, I, 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 I know. I said, but if there's no God, it's all nature. Isn't it odd that we think of cities as not nature? Anybody take trips out to nature? How can you take a trip out to nature if you're just an advanced form of an ant? Then a city's just our colony, and it's still nature. Yet somehow we have a sense that what we create is disconnected from nature. Because we know somehow we humans have stepped outside of our intention. Even the language of saying something is inhumane. We know when something is inhumane. You don't even have to believe in God to know a human act can be inhumane. But isn't that absurd? Isn't it absurd to think that a human act could be inhumane? Have you ever seen a killer whale eat a seal? They play with it at first. I mean, the killer whale comes up to the seal, catches it, but doesn't kill it, throws it in the air. And it just comes spiraling down and starts swimming away. And the killer whale just follows it, puts it in its mouth, throws it in the air. They're, they're playing. The seal doesn't want to play, but they're playing. And the seal starts swimming away. And then eventually when the seal is so exhausted, the whale eats it. And we don't think to ourselves, that's an animal. We think that's what killer whales do. When we see tigers hunting down an antelope, eating it while it's still throbbing, am I clear enough? Is it descriptive enough? See, have you ever taken any time to watch National Geographic? Don't do it, it's way too violent. <laughs> and yet we don't watch anything in nature and think to ourselves, that is unnatural. But we humans, we know that when we are at our worst selves, that we are actually expressing inhumanity. See, there are, there are shadows that keep haunting us. And, and God says, I'm going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh because I'm going to make you human again. See, the, the intention of the church, of those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, it, it's not to try to make the world moral. It's to try to make the world human. See, our mission is to reclaim our humanity and to remember what it means to be human again. I think sometimes we keep forgetting because we're so broken that broken starts looking normal. When I started thinking of the theme of the future of humanity, I remember when I was in fourth grade, I convinced myself I was from another planet. 
that I was from an alien species that they dropped me here on Earth to try to see if we could assimilate with the human species. And I would run away from home and run out into open fields and scream at the stars in the middle of the night and say, take me back, it's not working. So as you can imagine, I ended up in a psychiatric chair by the time I was 12 years old. How does a 12-year-old kid end up in a psychiatric chair? How does a 12-year-old kid end up having year after year after year of nightmares? How does a 12-year-old kid feel so desperate he can't get out of bed in the morning, can't go to sleep at night? How does a 12-year-old kid feel like he's suffocating to death and can't find a reason to live? How does a 12-year-old kid end up in a psychiatric chair trying to figure out what it means to be human? hoping against hope that the only explanation for his life is that some alien species dropped him in on a bad experiment. It's because we don't know how to be us, because we're broken. We can't explain the brokenness, but we just sense it, we feel it. It haunts us and it torments us and it, and it keeps defining us. And if we're not careful, all of human history will be written out of our hearts of stone and not our hearts of flesh. See, the human heart was never intended to be a container for hate. The human heart was never intended to be a container for violence. The human heart was never intended to be a container for despair. The human heart was never intended to be a container for fear. The human heart was never intended to be a container for bitterness or jealousy or envy or arrogance, but the very things that we've allowed to pour into the very essence of our souls have broken us and shattered us from the inside out. And so the scriptures tell us, no, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is the gift that God's going to give us. He's going to take away our hearts of stone because eventually, have you noticed that if you allow your heart to be absorbed by all the wrong things, your heart becomes harder and harder and harder. It's almost as if your heart stops beating. You lose your sense of compassion and empathy. If you're not careful, eventually you lose touch with what it means to love. You lose the ability to laugh and celebrate and enjoy life. How can you explain the runaway suicide rate in a society that has so much freedom and so much opportunity that people should be dancing in the streets, but we're drowning in despair? To the the wonder of it is that God is always placing in front of us a new future. But that future isn't, isn't ethereal. It's not just out there somewhere. That new future is in here somewhere. Because the design of human beings is so extraordinary. We've talked about this, that, that what makes humans so unique, different than every other species, is in the ways that, 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 that ants create colonies and bees create hives, humans create futures. And humans are designed to create and one of the great mistakes we've made is we thought that our mantra was, I think, therefore I am. But actually what fits us better is I breathe, therefore I create. See, humans are designed by God to create. We are imagined to imagine, created to create. And every human being is both a work of art and an artist at work. And the question is not, will you create a future? The question is, what kind of future will you create? Just a few weeks ago, I was in Quito, Ecuador, and I met these two brothers who were both neuroscientists. 
I didn't know it ran in the family. And we began having a conversation about phantom pain because I've been so fascinated with phantom pain. And one of the things that they told me was that a person can actually lose their arm and years later, someone can act like they're going to hit the arm and they'll move even though there's no arm there. It's extraordinary. The phenomenon of phantom pain to me is so amazing because you can lose a leg and years later, you feel the pain of a leg that isn't there. But for phantom pain to happen, you have to lose something that was once yours. You cannot have phantom pain for your second head that you never had. But you feel it because it was once there. You have a memory of it. It's a phantom memory. It's a phantom pain. See, I'm convinced that human ideals are the phantom pain of the soul. See, the reason we can imagine a world with peace, isn't that crazy? There's some of you here, you're going to spend your whole life fighting for world peace, but you've never known a world with peace. It's just an idea that you've never known. Some of you are going to fight your entire life for justice for everyone. But it's an insanity because you've never known a world without justice for everyone. Some of you will spend your entire life trying to find a way to make sure everyone has food. But there's never been a moment in history where everyone has food. Some of you will live your entire life making sure that every child has a family. But that's never been true in human history. See, now some of you are haunted by ideals. You see a picture of who humanity could be, and you're going to give your entire life to those ideals. But where do those ideals come from? Human ideals are the phantom pain of the soul. It's our remembering what we were supposed to be like. I, I, I think a lot of people are arguing about who God is and what God's like. I think maybe the most important conversation we can have is who are we and what are we supposed to be like? What does it mean to be created in the image and likeness of God? What does it mean to be human? There's a verse that I've gone back to so much because it has just astonished me. In Hebrews 11, verse 6, it says, And without faith... It is impossible to please God. You ever read the scriptures and you know it's supposed to be true, but it doesn't feel like it's true? But you just go, okay, it's true. I know it's true. I have to find a way to make my reality match what I'm reading. But when it says, by faith, it's the only mechanism, the only means which we can please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. I kind of step back and ask the question, Why? Why is it impossible to please God without faith? Again, no other species needs faith to please God. It's kind of unfair. We have a dog. She doesn't have faith. She doesn't have any ambition. She has no motivation. She doesn't even aspire to be a husky. She's just a lazy lab. You think she could get up one day and say, I'm going to be more. I'm going to be like a German shepherd. I'm going to be a Doberman, not our dog. She sleeps and she eats. Kim, you think there's something wrong with her. All she does is sleep. Well, honey, that's what dogs do. They have no desire to create a better world. They're just dogs. But our dog does not need faith to please God. I mean, they're, they're kangaroos living out back. They don't need faith. They just hop around and enjoy life. There is no species on this planet that is required to have faith to please God. So why should we? Like, God, why are you creating this unfair measure? Because it's so hard to live by faith. If 
You cannot please God without faith. What it tells us is something. What it tells us is that faith is not some magical formula that allows you to be superhuman. Faith is not some superstitious framework of reality that causes you to deny what's real and act as if what isn't true is true. Faith, the reason it is so powerful, the reason it is impossible to please God without faith is because faith restores our humanity. See, it is impossible to please God without faith because without faith, we live a subhuman life. See, when we live without faith, we actually start living like every other species on this planet. So that's why when you look back up in Hebrews 1, it says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. When I read that, I go, no, I don't have confidence in what I hope for. I have confidence in what I have. How about you? It's easier to have confidence in what we have than what we hope for. And so what it means is that when we have confidence in what we have, we're actually living a subhuman life. It's when faith shifts us and we begin having confidence in what we hope for that we begin living our lives as humans again. And the beautiful thing about hope is that hope cannot exist in the past because that's called regret. See, hope can only exist in the future. So it tells us that humans are designed for the future, not the past. Now explain to me why across the world the church is a relic of memories of the past rather than the epicenter of humanity's future. Just recently, a German theologian came, and he came to visit our community. He said, why don't you have any symbols? I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, you don't have any symbols. Why are there no symbols? And he seemed really distraught. And I said, well, there are symbols everywhere. Those chairs are symbols of people who are coming. I said, the screen, it's, it's, they're continuous moving symbols. He goes, but you don't have any symbols. I said, oh, see, your symbols point to the past. Our symbols point to the future. See, when you begin to live by faith, you begin to be human again, and you begin to lean into the future. It's so hard to convince people that Jesus creates a better future when the church keeps living in the past. We think that it's optional how our churches express themselves in the world. I think it is tragic and destructive for the church to hold on to the past rather than to grab hold of the future. We should be God's instruments in human history, creating the future that humanity desperately needs. Because now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Again, I have a lot more insurance than what I see. How about you? And what I don't see. In fact, if you don't pay attention, all you'll ever have is assurance in what you see. But somehow, we're supposed to be creatures connected to the future and to the invisible. We're supposed to have confidence in what we hope for, which is in the future, and assurance in what we do not see, which is the invisible. So we're supposed to be future invisible creatures, and this is not something supernatural. This is something natural. This is how humans are supposed to operate. Let me just give you a quick example. See, there's some of you here, you have more confidence in what you have and more assurance in what you see. You ever been around someone dating someone that they don't want to date? 
You know what I'm talking about? You know, she's, she's talking to all her girlfriends, saying, I don't know why. I don't even know why I'm with him anymore. Like, he used to be so, like, so, so sensitive, and he was so caring. He'd always show up early, bring me flowers. I don't even like flowers, but he would bring me flowers, and, and he would take me out to dinner, and we'd just have just a great time. Now he always shows up late, doesn't even call, doesn't text me back. In fact, I, I text him 20 times, doesn't even text me back. I don't know what's wrong. And, you know, and then you go, just get rid of him. Get another boyfriend. She says, no, he's my man. <laughs> I, I can change him. I can make him who I, I need him to be. You know why? Because you have confidence in who you have, not who you hope for. <laughs> you ever been around someone who hates their job? And I'm around people all the time. I hate my boss. I hate the drive. I hate the building. I hate what I do. I hate Mondays. I love Fridays. Go, quit your job. I can't. I have responsibilities. I have a family. I have, to, I have bills to pay. And it's because you have more confidence in the job you have than the job you hope for. See, and there's some of you, you hate your life. Let's just be really upfront. You hate your life. Like, how did this happen to me? How did I get here? And here's the crazy thing. I meet people all the time who hate their lives. And then you tell them, let me tell you what Jesus does. He will take that life you hate and give you a life you can't even imagine. And then you go, I don't know. I don't think so. Because you would rather exist with a life you hate than take a risk and step into the life you hope for. The beautiful thing about being human is that we're future invisible creatures. And I, I, I think verse 3 is really important in Hebrews where it says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. I, I think this is interesting because science always tells us that everything comes out of something, but that original something came out of nothing. And I love science, but we always think that's hilarious. Everything comes out of something, and then something came out of nothing. And then, like Christians go, no, it's like this. Everything came out of something, and then that something came out of nothing, but God was there. So we're saying the same thing science is saying. They just don't know who was there, and we say God was there. I, I think both positions are so interesting because, like with science, I go, okay, we know that everything comes out of something, and that something came out of nothing. But how long was that nothing nothing? And what happened in nothing's life? Where it finally decided I should do something. And how did nothing get something so right that it created everything? The first time out. But you see, this idea isn't right either. See, the scriptures does not teach that everything came out of something and something came out of nothing. But God spoke into nothing. Listen to again what the scriptures say. It says, so what is seen was not made out of what was visible. See, the scriptures do not tell us that everything came out of nothing. It says that everything that is seen came out of that which is not seen. So it means that there was invisible material from which God created all the visible reality. So I started asking myself, what is that invisible material? Is it, is it quantum liquid like in black holes? What is it? You know what it is? Everything in the scene came out of the dreams of God. That's the invisible material. See, there's a difference between something being nothing and something being invisible. Because in this room, there's oxygen and it's invisible, but it's something. And we know that there's something in the room because we're breathing it in and we're alive. 
I remember when I wrote my first book, The Unstoppable Force, I had the subtitle, Becoming the People God Dreams of. And the publisher sent it back and said, we can't use this subtitle. I said, why? He said, because God does not dream. I said, what? I said, no, God doesn't dream. I said, I think he does. He said, no, God doesn't dream. I said, well, I dream, and you dream, so you're saying we can do something God can't do. And, and then they said, well, it doesn't matter if God can dream. It matters that Christians don't believe that God can dream. And I quickly discovered that they were right. Christians believe that God can think, but they don't believe that God can dream. So I changed the title, Becoming the People God Had in Mind. And they said, we love it. Well, what do you have in mind? Dreams. Now here's a crazy thing. You see, God imagined the universe and then he created it out of his imagination. He dreamed of you, and you came into existence. In fact, that Jeremiah says, before you were born, I knew you. How is that possible? What God is saying is that you existed in my dreams before you were a fetus in the womb of your mother. You existed in my dreams before you were in the arms of your father. Now, where you started matters. You began in a dream. You began in the dreams of God. You were in his imagination. And if you started in the dreams of God, if when you took your first breath, you were the materialization of the dreams of God, shouldn't summer before you take your last breath, you live out the dreams that God has for your life. And then I began to see it. The reason the writer of Hebrews went to this is because you're created in the image of God. And so you were imagined to imagine and created to create. Just say it. I breathe, therefore I create. It's because you're human. The future of humanity is a creative future. It's a future where we finally understand what it means to be human, that we're designed by God as creative beings. And it is not an accident that we have an imagination. It is not incidental that we can create. There is no other species on this planet that can actually translate their imagination into reality. This is uniquely human. It was not that long ago when a courageous individual named Martin Luther King Jr. talked about how he was trying to live out the dreams of our forefathers and how he had a dream for his four daughters that one day they would be measured not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And no matter what your political persuasion may be, I want you to realize something. See, the moment Barack Obama took that, that oath of office he was actually stepping into the dreams of Martin Luther King Jr. Because all of us right now are living inside of someone else's imagination. There's a reality that exists right now because someone dreamed it up. There's someone who imagined it. There's someone who created it. And you're living inside of that imagination right now.
But here's the problem. People of faith keep waiting for God to create the future we all long for. We keep praying. Our thoughts and prayers are everywhere. We keep saying, God, do something. We keep being burdened and overwhelmed by the darkness and the brokenness of the world around us. We keep saying, God, do something. And God is shouting from eternity. I did something. I created you. Now you do something. And my greatest hope is that even though the darkest of humans, they, they somehow strangely find the courage to try to make their dreams a reality. But the problem is that when they take their dreams and turn them into reality, they become our nightmares. Evil men do not wait for permission from God to create what they imagine. While good people keep sitting back, daydreaming, hoping God will turn their dreams into the future. So it's time for us to be the future of humanity. Because I know that a world created by hate cannot compare to a world created by love. I know that a world created by despair cannot compete with a world created by hope. I know that a world created by fear cannot stand against a world created by faith. The church is supposed to be the epicenter of the future God imagines. Imagine God having created us, placing us in the middle of his imagination. Do you wanna know what God's imagination looks like? What God's imagination looks like when it's left untouched? It looks like paradise. When God dreams, it's beautiful. When God dreams, it's true. When God dreams, it's good. And God has never stopped dreaming about you. He dreams about you even still. And whether you realize it or not, we are all living inside of the imagination of God as well. But we have to choose what future we will live in. I remember years ago, I was at Columbia University, and, and I didn't know I was going to a debate. I, I thought it was like a roundtable dialogue or something like that. And, when I got there, I realized there was the senior scientist of the university, the head of the Department of Philosophy and Humanities, and me. And the subject is, what can be known? And I didn't even know the subject, I, I, and they probably told me I, I didn't notice. And the, the, the opening statements, the scientists read out a well-prepared statement of what can be known. What can be known is what empirically proven. I thought, that's good, that's right, because I, I, I love science. So he talked about empirical proof and evidence and scientific research and experimentation. This is what can be known, is what can be proven. I thought, yeah, I agree, I agree. And, and then the humanist was a Kantian philosopher. She said, what can be known is human action, ethics. We can know what people do. I thought, that's true too. I'm with you on that too. And I was really concerned. And I, 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 it was my turn and I said, well, one thing I can know is I should have been better prepared. And, because they seem to be experts in knowing, but I'm an expert in what we're not supposed to know. 
They said, in fact, science really isn't about what can be known or what is known. Science is about what isn't known because that's where science always has to go to remain science. And, and ethics, it's not really about what humans do and what we see, it's why we do it. It's the unseen motive behind our actions. And, and, and so I started having this conversation about how knowing is so multi-layered. I know that two plus two equals four and I know there's orange and there's red and there's green. And I know that my wife Kim loves me, but I don't know them all the same. I know them in different layers. Maybe there's a layer where we can actually know God. And then sometimes we humans know things we're not supposed to know, right? Like one time I was traveling, I'd been gone for maybe a week or two and I came home and I walked in and, and Kim saw me and I know she was probably so relieved to get some help and she just said to me the first thing, she goes, would you take out the garbage? And, and I knew that was, it's so good to see you, I love you. And, um, but I said, I'm so tired, could you just let me sit and rest for a minute? I didn't respond well. And so I said, she goes, I'm so sorry. She, she just felt so bad. She goes, I'm so sorry. Just sit down, please. I'm sorry. And then I got a phone call from one of the guys. And he said, hey, Erwin, we got a basketball court. Do you want to play ball? I said, let, let, me, let me talk to Kim. And, uh, and I got up and I went over and I said, hey, honey, after I take out the garbage, I, I was like wondering if I could like go play ball with the guys. And she goes, oh, no, I wouldn't dream of you going to play basketball. You're so tired. You just sit down and rest. And I said, no, no, it's like I can't explain it. I'm like so, like I'm alive. I'm like re-energized. It's like, it's like a miracle. And I have enough energy to take out the garbage and go play basketball. And, and she goes, okay, let me get this straight. You've been gone for like two weeks. This is your first night home. And you'd rather go play basketball with the guys than be home with me. When you put it like that, it just sounds so wrong, you know? <laughs> and I knew I needed to answer that question really carefully. I said, do you know how important it is to have like guys in your life? And she goes, no, she goes, no, go right ahead. She goes, go right ahead. I somehow knew <laughs> that she didn't mean that. I, it's, we're so nuanced as humans. And, 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 and I think there's a layer where we know that there's something missing, that we know there's something broken, we know that there's something more. We have these ideals that call us to the highest level of nobility and heroism. We have this brokenness and this, this vacuum in our souls that just can't get filled. We, we just know there's a deeper conversation. We just don't know who we're having it with. And so after it was over, there was like one question for the scientist and one question for the humanist and like 500 questions for the guy who actually still believes in God. And I'll never forget this one question said, uh, when you were a, a child, you had imaginary friends like Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy and God. Why did you get rid of your other imaginary friends and keep God? Isn't that a great question? And at one time, Kim and I were in Ireland and we were traveling around the country and I was real quiet for a few days and was having the best time of our lives. Well, I, I was having the best time of my life. And, and suddenly Kim just interrupted and said, I can't take this anymore. Uh, what, babe? Like traveling the world with me? What, what, what do you mean? And she goes, I can't take this anymore. I said, what? She goes, you haven't said one word for three days. I need you to have a conversation. Is this the way it's going to be when the kids are gone? I said, honey, that's the way it was before the kids were here. You and the kids have been talking for 20 years. And I've been <laughs> listening. And she goes, well, I don't care. This has to change. You need to have a conversation. And I said, but honey, I have been having conversations for the last three days with all my friends. And I said, if you wanted to join us, all you had to do was ask. So I'm now at Columbia, and I go, you clearly don't know me if you think I've given up my imaginary friends. They're the only friends I've had a whole life long, and uh, I trust them. They know me. They've been good to me. 
I said, but you're right. I did get rid of some of my imaginary friends like Santa Claus and Tooth Fairy. And God was an occasional visitor. But here's the crazy thing. Just because you have friends in your imagination doesn't mean there isn't a friend that created your imagination. Because if there is a God, then it makes perfect sense that we have imaginations. Because the human imagination is the only place that God could meet us. Because the imagination is the playground of God where he can pour into us his dreams and visions. He can help us see a future that no one has ever known. He can help us see a humanity that no one even believes in. He can help you see a you that you have not yet become. He can help you see a life you've never lived. God can whisper into your soul. Let me tell you, God is an artist. And if you allow him into your imagination and to paint into your soul, he will paint a picture of a new you and a new future and a new world. And they will either drive you mad or drive you to change the world. So let's be that new humanity. I'll never forget John that I met in Toronto, and he was an atheist, an engineer from China, and he said, you're talking about hearing the voice of God. He says, what does God's voice sound like? He said, it's kind of hard because it sounds like my voice, and then sometimes it sounds like someone else's voice, and when he's mad, he sounds like my mom's voice. And he goes, no, what does God's voice sound like? I said, John, you're an atheist? He said, yes. I said, why would you come here? He goes, well, my friends invited me. I said, no, not here, but why'd you come to me? So I just want to know what God's voice sounds like. But you're an atheist, right? He goes, yes. I said, it sounds like nothing because you're an atheist, so there's no God, so there's no voice. He goes, but what does God's voice sound like to you? I said, all right. John, there are times in my life I feel like I'm not good enough. Times in my life I just I feel like I just can't get up one more day. And there's this little voice in my head that says, get up. There's days in my life I feel like I, 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 I'm just not adequate for, for the task. And I hear this voice that says, just get up and step into the moment. There are times where I just feel filled with despair. There's a voice that says, no, there's hope. There's times I'm just so filled with shame. And there's a voice that says, there's no shame. Just get up and live. You ever have voices in your head that you don't know how they got there? And they actually are arguing with you. I'm like, how can you be arguing with me? You're all me. He goes, John, you're an atheist, right? He goes, yes, I'm an atheist. I said, do you have a voice in your head? that said to you, go talk to the guy. There might be a God. Do you have a voice in your head that says, there's a God, there's a God, there's a God. But you're an atheist, but there's a voice that's not cooperating. And I said, it's like a parasite in your brain. It's like a parasite just keeps eating away. You're raising away. There's a God, there's a God, there's a God. And he goes, yes, it's like a parasite in my head. I can't stop it. And I said, John, that parasite is God. See, because let me tell you what God will never do. He will never leave you without a picture of who you could become. He will never leave you without a window into who humanity could become. God will just keep whispering and whispering and speaking and speaking and painting in the canvas of your soul a life he created you to live. And every time you have a voice inside you that tells you your last, his voice is going to tell you, no, you are more. Every time you have a voice that says you just need to quit, that voice says get up and get going. Every time you feel like you're a failure, you say, what are you talking about? This is just practice. Because you're ready to step into something extraordinary. And I love the fact that we're living in the dreams of Jesus. That Jesus imagined us. Jesus looked at us and said, you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. And we didn't look like either. But you know what? I'm sick and tired of living in someone else's imagination that tries to suffocate me and make me less. I want to live in the imagination of God where I can be everything God created me to be.
I'm not going to wait for the future of humanity. I'm going to be the future of humanity. How about you? How about you? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that in this moment, there's an epicenter of the future being created right now. God, I pray that you would you'd whisper to the hearts and minds of every person here dreams so maddening that they would almost feel overwhelmed by the beauty of them. God, I, I am so grateful that you do not leave us in our brokenness. You do not leave us in our insufficiency. You do not leave us with our hearts divided and shattered. So God, tonight we give you our hearts of stone and we receive from you our heart of flesh. And God, we don't need you to do anything more than to make us human again. God, I pray that just starting with us, you would create a humanity that is moved by love, by compassion, by kindness. God, begin a new humanity in us where we choose forgiveness. We choose, God, to open our lives to those that would forever remain on the outside. God, make us a people of community, of belonging. God, I pray that we would be a picture to the world of the ideals that haunt us all, that we would restore the hope in humanity that we would not wait for someone else to change the world around us, that we would be the change that the world so desperately needs. And Jesus, I am so grateful that when you died on the cross, you were dreaming about us, seeing us as who we would become when we've been changed by you. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed just for a moment, you might be here in this moment and you've never crossed the line of faith. You've never opened your life to Jesus. And just maybe this is the moment where you and Jesus need to meet. God's already for you. Jesus already gave his life for you. He's just waiting for you to give your life to him. So I want to lead you in a simple prayer where you can Invite Jesus to change your life forever, to make you a new human. It's just one sentence. It's not everything you and God need to talk about, but it's a good place to start. Here's the prayer. Jesus, I give you my life. That's it. Everything else will come. But right now, just pray this down. Jesus, I give you my life. Right now, just whisper it to him. Jesus, I give you my life. He will take your heart of stone. He will take your broken heart. He will take your shattered heart and give you a heart of flesh and make you human again. Right now, Jesus, I give you my life. If this is your prayer, I want to pray for you. 
If you just whisper to God, Jesus, I give you my life. I just want you right now just to hold your hand up. I just want to see you, and I want to pray for you. Beautiful, so wonderful, so good. Anyone else right now in the balcony? Anyone else right now? Jesus, I give you my life. So good. Father, I thank you for those in this moment have opened up their lives to you. That they've crossed this line of faith. And God, I pray that right now you just let them know that they belong to you, that you'll never leave them or abandon them. That you have literally made them human again. May this new heart, new spirit, new life erupt from within their souls. We thank you, Father. And we pray in Jesus' name. I want you to look up just for a moment. One of our convictions here at Mosaic is that every human being is an artist. Every human being is a creative. Every human being creates. But never forget, the material from which you create is the essence of your soul. If your heart is filled with anger and bitterness, with jealousy, with violence, you're going to create a dark and destructive world. If your heart is filled with love and compassion and forgiveness and grace, you're going to create a more beautiful world. So you need to be the steward of your art. Because when you leave this place, you'll begin creating a future others will be touched by. So together, let's imagine a beautiful world. Let's imagine a beautiful humanity. And let's begin to find the courage to create what we could only see through the eyes of God. Can you imagine what would happen then? What a future, what a future it would be. God bless. Thank you so much for joining us on the Mosaic Podcast. I want to encourage you to take the message you just received and allow it to go deeply into your soul. Let Jesus do the deep work that only he can do. A special thank you to everyone who gives to Mosaic. Your sacrifice makes this podcast possible and creates life change all over the world. You can be a part of spreading this message around the world by going to mosaic.org give. You can also subscribe, rate, and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.